We are going to read now from Deuteronomy chapter 18, verses 15 through 19, and Luke 24, verses 13 through 53. Deuteronomy 18, 15 through 19 is the Old Testament reading. Luke 24, 13 through 53 is the new. Hear now the reading of God's most holy word. Deuteronomy chapter 18, verse 15. Moses, speaking to the people of Israel, said, The Lord your God will rise up for you a prophet like me from among you, from your brothers. It is to him you shall listen, just as you desired of the Lord your God at Horeb on the day of the assembly when you said, Let me not hear again the voice of the Lord my God or see this great fire anymore, lest I die. And the Lord said to me, They are right in what they have spoken. I will rise up for them a prophet like you from among their brothers. And I will put my words in his mouth, and he shall speak to them all that I command him. And whoever will not listen to my words, that he shall speak in my name, I myself will require it of him. A marvelous passage, brothers and sisters, from the law, Moses speaking of a coming prophet whom the Lord would speak through. Uh, There were many prophets that came after the days of Moses, but here uh, we are hearing about the one prophet who will come, Christ Jesus the Lord. Let us go now to Luke chapter 24, and we will read verses 13 through 53. Luke 24, verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem. And they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. While they were talking and discussing together, Jesus Himself drew near and went with them, but their eyes were kept from recognizing Him. And He said to them, What is the conversation that you are holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who does not know the things that have happened there in these days? And he said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, a man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that He was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find His body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that He was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but Him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken, was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him, and he vanished from their sight. 
They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while He talked to us on the road, while He opened to us the Scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road and how He was known to them in the breaking of the bread. And they were talking about these things. Jesus stood among them and said to them, Peace to you. But they were startled and frightened and thought they saw a spirit. And he said to them, Why are you troubled? And why do doubts arise in your heart? See my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me and see. For a spirit does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy, they were marveling. He said to them, Have you anything to eat here? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. Then he said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in His name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of My Father upon you, but stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. And He led them out as far as Bethany, and lifting up His eyes, He blessed them. Lifting up His hands, rather, He blessed them. While He blessed them, He parted from them, and was carried up into heaven. And they worshipped Him, and returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and were continually in the temple, blessing God. So far the reading of God's most holy word, may He add His blessing to the preaching of it this morning. I do understand that many come to church on Easter Sunday, and they expect to hear a sermon about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Instead, I will be preaching a sermon to you regarding Christ being the fulfillment of the law, but this is still about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, brothers and sisters. In fact, I don't know if I ever preach a sermon that is not somehow about the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. Everything is centered upon Him, isn't it? So even when we consider the law, we are going to consider the gospel too. And so we are going to consider Christ the fulfillment of the law. And the question that I wish wish to ask this morning is, Why did Christ's death, burial, and resurrection count for anything at all? Why did it count for anything? Uh, We love to talk about how Christ suffered for us. Indeed, He did suffer for us in the whole of life. He suffered supremely upon the cross. He atoned for sins there. Therefore, He has the forgiveness of sins to give. But here this morning, I wish to emphasize that Christ did not only suffer for us, but He lived for us. Christ lived an obedient life. He was righteous. He fulfilled the law. And therefore, Christ does not only have the forgiveness of sins to give to those who have faith in Him, He also has His righteousness to give. You see, we have these two needs. We have the problem of sin, which deserves eternal condemnation. That must be removed. But even then, we would lack righteousness, positively speaking. And Christ has righteousness to give. Why? Because Christ, the God-man, fulfilled the law of God 
for sinners. Over the past many weeks, we've been considering the Ten Commandments that God spoke to Israel from Mount Sinai in the days of Moses. I've attempted to teach you what each commandment of the Ten Commandments requires and forbids. Along the way, I've also tried to teach you about God's moral law more generally. I've taught you about the distinction between the moral law and the civil and ceremonial laws given to Israel. I've taught you about the difference between moral law and positive law. And I have also taught you about the three different uses of the law, the civil, the pedagogical, and the normative. I've I've presented these truths to you, brothers and sisters, so that you, being united to Christ by faith and washed in His blood, might know God's law, understand what it requires and forbids, and love it in the heart, and by the grace of God, obey it in the whole of life. We've been talking about God's law a lot lately, haven't we? And we will soon, soon return to our study of the Ten Commandments themselves. But before we do, I wish to draw your attention to one other thing about the law which God gave to Israel in the days of Moses. And that is how Jesus Christ kept the law perfectly and thus fulfilled it. We've talked about the three uses of the law. Again, the civil, the pedagogical, and the normative. These three uses of the law pertain to us. This is how God uses the law in our lives as His people, or even in our lives before we came to faith in Christ. But here I am talking about Christ's relationship to the law of Moses. How did Jesus Christ relate to the law of Moses? Let us first consider the moral law and its three uses, the civil, pedagogical, and the normative, and ask how these uses of the moral law applied to Jesus the Christ And after we do, we will confess that Christ fulfilled the law of Moses by obeying the moral law perfectly. We know that the law of Moses functioned in a civil way when Christ lived on earth. Christ lived in a civil society wherein evil was restrained by God's moral law. We all benefit from the civil use of the law in this way, but Christ was no exception. The moral law of God was functioning civilly to restrain evil and to uphold a degree of justice in the world when Christ walked the earth so that He could accomplish our redemption. We must say that the moral law of God did not function in that pedagogical way. Do you remember what I told you about the pedagogical use of the law last week? I I told you that the moral law has this function. God uses the moral law to convict men and women concerning their sin. When we read the Ten Commandments, when we see that we are to love God supremely, that we are to worship and serve Him alone, not with images, in the way that He has prescribed, with reverence in our hearts for God, honoring one day in seven as holy, when we consider that we are, that we are to obey God as it pertains to our relationship with one another, never murdering or hating in the heart, not committing adultery or lusting in the heart, etc., etc. When we consider God's moral law in that way, those not in Christ are condemned by that law. We see that we are in fact sinners by nature. We have violated this law in thought, word, and deed. And so the law functions in this way. It condemns sinners by showing them their guilt. And when it is combined with the gospel, it drives men to the Savior by God's grace. You are guilty, the law says. But salvation is available to you through Christ the Redeemer. The law and the gospel work in this way to drive men to faith in Christ by God's grace. But Christ had no sin. Christ had no sin. This is why I say that the moral law did not function in this pedagogical way in relation to Him. Yes, He was born under the law, but never was He condemned by the law, for He was guiltless all the days of His life. 
The moral law did function in a normative way for Christ, though. The moral law of God was the norm, or the standard, for Christ, just as it is for us. Christ was to keep God's moral law, just as we are to keep God's moral law. And what is the difference between Him and us in this respect? Well, He kept God's law perfectly. Never did He sin. Never did He deviate from the standard. Never did He miss the mark. He was not born into sin as we are. And this is why He was virgin born, by the way. His nature was not corrupt. And being upheld by His divine nature and by the power of the Holy Spirit, He lived in perfect obedience to the moral law of God all the days of His life. The moral law shows us the way that we should go. By God's grace, we do sometimes go in the right way, but often we fail. Even when we do go in the right way, there is oftentimes corruption mingled in with our obedience. But Christ, on the other hand, went in the right way of God's moral law perfectly, perpetually, and without any corruption whatsoever. As the Scriptures say, He was in every respect tempted as we are, yet without sin. That is Hebrews 4.15. So how did the Messiah relate to the law of Moses? The first thing we must say is that the moral law of God functioned as the norm or standard for Him, and He kept the moral law of God perfectly. When we say that Christ was born under the law and that He came to fulfill the law, this is one of the things that we mean. He fulfilled the law by living in perfect obedience to the moral law of God all the days of His life. Again, He was tempted as we are, yet without sin. But more must be said regarding Jesus Christ's keeping of the law of Moses. We must not forget that Jesus was born under the Old Covenant. Jesus was born under the Old Covenant. He lived His whole life under the terms of that covenant. He was bound, therefore, to keep not only the moral law, as we are, but also the civil and ceremonial laws of that covenant, too. Have you ever thought about this? Christ was not only bound to keep the moral law, as we are, if He was to be sinless, he was born under the Old Covenant, so He was to keep all of those Old Covenant laws too, the civil laws that were given to Israel, the ceremonial laws that were given to them. I, I hardly need to say anything about Christ's keeping of the civil laws of the Old Covenant. The civil laws of the Old Covenant had to do with the government of Israel and with the civil penalties for lawbreakers. Christ was without sin, we have already said. Never did He break the civil laws of the Old Covenant, therefore. All of Israel's civil laws had the moral law of God at their core, and if one were to obey the moral law, if they were to love God with all their heart, soul, mind, and strength, and their neighbor as themselves, then they would keep the civil laws perfectly too. And this Christ certainly did. I, I suppose that we should say that He even kept the specific positive details of the Old Covenant civil law in order to fulfill all righteousness. But what about the ceremonial laws? What about the ceremonial laws of the Old Covenant? Remember these laws, the ceremonial laws, governed... Israel's worship. They gave to Israel principles for worship, directions for worship, and ceremonies which they were to keep. Israel, as you know, for example, was to observe circumcision. They were to worship at the temple and offer up particular sacrifices there. They were to observe festival days in addition to the seventh-day Sabbath 
They were also to avoid certain foods. These ceremonial laws of the Old Covenant are not binding upon us because we do not live under the Old Covenant but under the New. But they were binding upon Jesus of Nazareth for He was born, He lived and died under the Old Covenant. He was a Hebrew. He was an Israelite. And because of this, He was obligated to keep the ceremonial laws of the Old Covenant. For Him to fail to do so would have been sin. And so what should we say about Jesus' relationship to the ceremonial laws of the Old Covenant. First, we must say that He kept them perfectly. He even kept these laws perfectly when it was outside of His control. What do I mean by that? Well, when we read the Gospels and we hear about Christ's life even as a baby, uh, we learn that He was obedient to the ceremonial laws of the Old Covenant even then through His parents. Luke 2.21 tells us that he was circumcised on the eighth day in obedience to the law of Moses. And in Luke 2.22 we read, And when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, his parents brought him up to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. So you see that even in his infancy, Christ is, is fulfilling the ceremonial laws of the Old Covenant through his parents. He did not decide to do these things, as parents did, but they were faithful to keep the ceremonial laws of the Old Covenant so that Jesus Himself would live in fulfillment, the law of Moses, in every respect. And this He would do all the days of His life. Christ was born under the law of Moses. He kept the moral law of God perfectly and perpetually. Never was He guilty under the civil laws of Israel. And as it pertains to the ceremonial laws of the Old Mosaic Covenant, He kept those too. He worshipped at the temple, he kept the Passover to name just two things, along with all of the rest. The second thing we must say about Jesus' relationship to the ceremonial laws of the Old Covenant is that he fulfilled their symbolism. He fulfilled their symbolism. Think of the ceremonial laws, instructions given for worship at the temple and for washings and, and for the observance of festival days, Passover being one of them. Christ fulfilled these laws in that He kept them, He obeyed them perfectly, He participated in these things in the right way and with a right heart. But also, He fulfilled their symbolism. This is in fact the third point of the sermon for today, and it is truly a marvelous thing to consider. Jesus fulfilled the law in that He kept or obeyed the law as a Jewish man. But as the Messiah, listen to this, brothers and sisters, as the Messiah, He fulfilled the law by being the one to whom the law pointed. He fulfilled the law by also being the one to whom the law pointed. Only the Christ could fulfill the law of Moses in this way. Others, to a greater or lesser degree, kept the law of Moses. By this I mean that they obeyed the law of Moses and fulfilled its demands. No one perfectly, Christ only. But no one except the Messiah could fulfill the law in this second way. He, Jesus, the Messiah, He, Jesus, the Christ, God's anointed one, fulfilled the law in that He was the one to whom the law pointed. This is true in so many ways. I'll give you just a few examples so that you can see what I mean. And I'm sure that other examples will come to your mind even as I'm preaching or maybe later on. How did the law of Moses point to Christ? And how did Christ fulfill the law of Moses by being the one to whom the law pointed? 
consider the Passover, consider this feast that the people of Israel were commanded to observe from Moses' time onward. It's a law given to Israel in the days of Moses, a ceremonial law that the Hebrew people were to observe the Passover yearly. What was it all about? Well, it was a memorial to the great act of deliverance which God worked for Israel to redeem them from Egypt. But it was also forward-looking. In the Passover feast, the Messiah was symbolized When Israel sacrificed the Passover lamb and spread its blood on the doorposts of their home, they were both reminded of what the Lord had done in their past, and they were also reminded of the greater thing that He would do in the future, namely, to save them from their sins through the promised Christ and His shed blood. And this is why Jesus was introduced as the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Why was He called that? Why was he called that by John the Baptist? Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He was bringing to mind the Passover lamb, along with all of the animals that had been sacrificed at the temple under the Old Covenant ceremonial law. Uh, He was saying to those who heard him, This is the one. This is the Christ, the anointed one of God, the Messiah. This is the one to whom all those other lambs pointed. Their blood was shed to remind the people of Israel of what God did at the time of the Exodus, but the blood of the Passover lamb was also shed to be forward-looking, to remind you of the promises of the gospel that have been preached to the people of God from Adam's fall into sin onward. This is the one to whom these animal sacrifices pointed. So think of it. It really is marvelous to consider. When Jesus celebrated the Passover with His disciples, He was doing two things. One, he was obeying the law of Moses as an old covenant Israelite. He was doing what the law commanded him to do. And two, he was also fulfilling that which the Passover symbolized. He was the fulfillment of it in that he was the one to whom the Passover pointed. This is why on the night when he was betrayed, think of it, on the night when he was betrayed, the night before his crucifixion, He held up the bread of the Passover and said, This is my body which is for you. This is my body which is for you. And after supper, he took a cup of the Passover and said, This is the new covenant in my blood. Yes, Christ instituted something new in that moment. The Lord's Supper is not the same as the Passover. It's different. But you can see the relationship between them, can't you? Christ instituted the Lord's Supper not with common bread, but with Passover bread, and not with a common cup, but with a cup from the Passover feast. You can see then that Christ's broken body and shed blood were in the Passover feast all along in a prophetic and forward-looking way. Christ simply made it explicit and definite on the night before His crucifixion as He gave the new covenant people of God one of their sacraments to be observed until He returns. Are you following me on this? Christ fulfilled the law in that He kept the Passover. He did what the law required in this regard. But He fulfilled the law in another way that was unique to Him. He fulfilled the law by being the one to whom the law pointed. Christ fulfilled the Passover in this way. Something similar can be said about the temple itself. Christ worshipped at the temple. 
in obedience to the law of Moses. At the same time, it may truly be said that Christ is the true temple. These two things are true. He went to the temple and He worshipped there. He prayed there. He offered up appropriate sacrifices there. Not sacrifices to atone for His sins, for He had none, but the appropriate sacrifices wherein He gave thanks and praise to God. He kept the laws regarding temple worship. But He was also the temple of God itself. He was the one to whom the temple pointed. This is why Jesus spoke in this way, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. What was He talking about when He said those words? The Jews misunderstood Him. thought He was talking about the temple of stone. Destroy this temple and I'll raise it back up in three days. They were very puzzled about this. They even replied to Him saying, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days. But He was speaking about the temple of His body. When therefore He was raised from the dead, His disciples remembered that He had said this, and they believed the Scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken to him. If we are to truly understand the significance of Jesus' words here, we must see that the temple, the old covenant tabernacle and then temple, pointed forward to Christ. The old covenant tabernacle and temple signified Him. It was prophetic and forward-looking. All the sacrifices that were offered there, they cleansed the people as it pertained to their righteousness in the land. But those same animal sacrifices offered up at the temple also pointed forward to the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world really and truly and for all eternity, you see. Sins before God. The temple there functioned under the Old Covenant as the place wherein the people of God were able to come and access God, to come before Him. But we know that Jesus the Christ is the mediator between God and man. Jesus Christ is the temple in this respect. He is the one through whom we go in order to come into the presence of the Father. Do you remember what happened when Jesus died on the cross and breathed His last? What happened to a very important feature of the temple, that curtain which divided the holy place from the most holy place where God's presence was, was, was there manifest in glory under the old covenant. What happened to that temple? It was torn in two from top to bottom as if God had done it. In fact, God did do it, you see. And that it was torn in two, this massive curtain from top to bottom. Uh, there was a message sent there from God to us, and that is that the way has been opened up the way has been opened up. We come to God and into His presence, not through the curtain any longer, the curtain of the temple through which the high priest would go once a year. We come to God and into His presence through the curtain, that is to say, through Christ's flesh, the call to worship today. From Hebrews, mention this. How do we come into God's presence, right and pure, as His beloved children, we come not through the curtain of the temple, but through Christ, through His broken body and shed blood. I'm saying to you, brothers and sisters, that when Christ worshipped at the temple, He fulfilled the law in that He obeyed the laws concerning temple worship. But He also fulfilled the temple in this respect. It pointed to Him and to the work that He would finish. This is why during Jesus' ministry He spoke in this way concerning the temple. It's desolate, He said. I leave this to you desolate. Matthew 23, 38 says this. This temple 
This earthly temple is desolate or empty. Why? Because the fulfillment of the temple has come. This temple is no longer needed. It was for the old covenant people of God. They worshipped there, and it was good that they did. They worshipped there by the command of God. It served its purpose. It gave them an access to the Father. It gave them a way for their sins to be cleansed in an earthly sense so that they might remain in the land. But the Messiah has come, and He is the temple of God. Through the breaking of His flesh and the shedding of His blood, the way to God has been opened up. This temple, the earthly one, is desolate, Christ said. But now we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering for He who promised is faithful. Hebrews 10, 19-23 There is temple language all throughout that text that I have just read. And what does the writer of the Hebrews want us to see? He wants us to see Christ. He wants us to see that Christ was the fulfillment of the temple. He is the temple of God. He is the one through whom we must go to come to the Father. So, Christ fulfilled the law by obeying it, the ceremonial laws. He also fulfilled the ceremonial laws by being the one to whom these laws pointed. So much more could be said regarding Christ's fulfillment of the ceremonial laws of the Old Covenant. Uh, We could go through every element of the sacrificial system, of the priesthood, of the seventh-day Sabbath, of, of every feast day. We could speak about how the law of Moses was meant to preserve the Hebrew people so that through them the Messiah would be brought into the world in the fullness of time. We could talk about the way that the law of Moses was designed to magnify sin so that people from every tongue, tribe, and nation would see their sin and, upon hearing the gospel, be driven to Christ. The law of Moses points to Christ in so many ways. Indeed, He is the fulfillment of it. He is the prophet whom Moses spoke of so long ago. The one to whom we are all to listen. Brothers and sisters, this lesson that I am here presenting to you was the lesson that Christ taught to His disciples when He appeared to them in His resurrection. Undoubtedly, His teaching was much better than mine. But this was the kind of lesson that He gave to His disciples as He met with them in His resurrection. He lived, He died, He went into the grave. On the third day, He rose again, and He was on earth with His disciples for 40 days' time. He met with them on Sundays. He broke bread with them on Sundays, the first day of the week, the Lord's Day, and He taught them the Scriptures. What did He teach them? He wanted them to know primarily this. The law, the prophets, and the Psalms have been fulfilled by Him. They all pointed to Him. We read about it in Luke 24. His two disciples were on the road to a town called Emmaus. They were discouraged. He rebuked them, saying, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into His glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, He interpreted to them all, in all the Scriptures the things concerning Himself. He, he opened the Scriptures for them. And, and, and where did He begin? He, he began with Moses. 
He began with the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Old Testament. And from there, he continued through the rest of the Old Testament scriptures. And what did he show them? He interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. He said, here I am. Here I am, here I am, here I am. In the Old Testament scriptures, again and again and again, through prophecies, through promises, through types, through shadows, through symbolism. Here I am. I'm the fulfillment of it all. And after Christ departed from these in Emmaus, He went back to Jerusalem and met with the eleven who were assembled there. He said to them, These are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then He opened their minds to understand the Scriptures and said to them, Thus it is written that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in His name to all nations. Beginning from Jerusalem, you are witnesses of these things. You are witnesses of these things. Go preach the Gospel now. You've seen me raised. Go preach the Gospel now. Go teach the Scriptures. The Scriptures that I have taught to you, teach it to others. Preach the Gospel that forgiveness of sins is available through faith in the risen and victorious Messiah. When Christ reasoned with them from the Scriptures, He did not reason from the New Testament Scriptures, for they had not yet been written. He reasoned from the Old Testament Scriptures. He showed His disciples everything that was written about Him in the Law of Moses and the Prophets and the Psalms and how He was the fulfillment of them. And notice He did not merely show them that He had obeyed the Law of Moses perfectly. That was not the message. He could have done that. He could have gone through the Ten Commandments, the civil laws and the ceremonial laws given to Israel in the days of Moses. He could have said, look it, I lived in perfect obedience to all of these things. He did that, of course, but that was not the message. Instead, he showed them how he fulfilled the law in another way. He was the fulfillment of the law, the prophets, and the Psalms in that he was the one to whom they pointed. The scriptures pointed forward to Christ's coming. In the Old Testament scriptures, we find prophecies, promises, types, and shadows concerning the Savior who was to come, and they all landed on Jesus of Nazareth. They all landed on Him. He was no ordinary man, but was the promised Messiah of Israel, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. As I begin to move this sermon towards a conclusion, I have two questions to ask. One, why did Jesus of Nazareth rise from the dead? Why did He? What gave Him the right to do so? Men die, they go into the grave, and they stay there. That's the natural order of things. Men do not rise from the dead. What gave Jesus the right to be raised? And two, why is the forgiveness of sins and the hope of life everlasting available through faith in Him? I wonder if you've ever thought about these things. What is it about Jesus of Nazareth that gave Him the right to rise from the dead bodily and to ascend to the Father's right hand, to be given the name above every name, to judge all who are not united to Him by faith at the end of time, and to usher in the new heavens and earth in which righteousness dwells? What gave Him the right to be exalted in this way? And why is it that He has the power to save all who come to Him, to wash away their sins and to give the promised Holy Spirit? If I, being moved by my love for you, 
were to say, I will die for you and in your place, would it accomplish anything if I followed through with it? Would it accomplish anything at all? Well, no, it would not. Perhaps it would prove that I did possess a real love for you. It would certainly prove that I was delusional. But it would not accomplish anything, really. I would die, and I would stay dead, and you would still be in your sins, and you would die and stay dead and be guilty before God, if not in Christ. So why was Christ able to die and rise again? And why was He able to do this not only for Himself but for others? Answer, because God appointed Him to this task. God appointed Him to this task. In eternity, before the creation of the heavens and earth, God the Father appointed the Son to take upon Himself human nature. As God incarnate, He was to live in perfect obedience to God's law, so that he would be a righteous man. He was to suffer in the flesh, even to the point of death. And when he died, he was to die not for his own sins, but for the sins of those given to him by the Father in eternity. And as the reward for his faithful obedience, the Son would be given eternal life, a name that is above every name, and the new heavens and earth as his eternal possession. These he would have not for himself only, but as a gift to give to all who are united to Him by faith. He was able to do this because this was His appointed task. You see, Jesus of Nazareth did not simply decide one day that He would live for others and die for others and rise for others. He did not, in His humanity, look out upon humanity and have compassion upon the multitudes and say, You know what? I am going to take it upon myself to live for these and to die for these. No. He, as the eternal Word of God, was given this mission in eternity. It was His task to become incarnate, to live for others, to die for others, and to be raised in victory upon the completion of His work. If you would like to see a scripture text that talks explicitly about this, go and read Jesus' prayer to the Father in John chapter 17. It is right there, clearest day. Christ was not an ordinary man. He was the eternal Word of God come in the flesh. And He came to accomplish a work. He came to do the Father's will for Him as the God-man, as the Messiah. He was born into this world and He possessed a human nature. One person, two natures, divine and human. He was born without original sin born of a virgin. He, being upheld by His divine nature and by the power of the Holy Spirit, succeeded in living a holy life. He was truly a sinless man. And when He finished the race that was set before Him, when He lived in perfect obedience to the moral law under which all men are born and to the civil and ceremonial laws of Old Covenant Israel, having been born under them as the Messiah of Israel, and having suffered and having taken upon Himself the wrath of God in the place of those given to Him by the Father in obedience to the terms of the covenant made with the Father in eternity, He said, It is finished. It is finished. What is finished, Jesus? What is finished? His mission was finished. The work that the Father gave for Him to do was finished. It was complete. He was victorious. He succeeded. It is finished. And then He breathed His last and was placed into the grave. He breathed His last. And when He did, the battle was not lost, but won. 
For Jesus Christ, death was victory. He was put into the grave, but the grave could not hold him. As Peter says, God raised him up, loosing the pains of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Christ was raised in victory, not for himself only, but for all, given to him by the Father. And he was raised in victory because, listen to this, because he had earned life eternal through his faithful obedience. He finished the work given to him by the Father in eternity. And this he says so clearly in his prayer to the Father as recorded in John 17. He lifted up his eyes to heaven, now I quote, and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you since you have given Him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given Him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. You can read on on your own time. Did you hear it? The Christ had been sent by the Father to do something specific, to live and to die and to rise again for those whom the Father had given to Him. And here in this high priestly prayer of Jesus, as we call it, He is saying, I've I've done the work. I've been obedient to You. And now the time has come for You to glorify Me in Your presence with the same glory that I had with You before the world existed. It's marvelous to consider. Here we are given insight into what we call the covenant of redemption. Friends, Christ was born into this world to accomplish a mission. He came to overthrow the work of the evil one, to atone for the sins of those given to Him by the Father, and to earn life eternal by His obedience. This work was foretold. This work was foretold. This plan was revealed to us In Old Testament times, again, through prophecies, promises, types, and shadows, it was revealed ahead of time so that God's elect who lived prior to the arrival of the Messiah might trust in God and in His Christ through these promises. Do you see that they had access to the gospel through these things? They had access to these promises. They had access to these prophecies. They could see the symbolism of the temple and of the sacrificial system and of the priesthood. They could see the symbolism of the washings and of the holy days they were to observe. They could see Christ in them. They could look forward to His coming. They could trust in God for the forgiveness of their sins. Not all who were in Israel had this faith. Only some did. But those who had true faith were trusting in Christ ahead of time as they looked forward to His coming. So Christ revealed this, God revealed this plan to us in Old Testament times so that those who lived before His coming might be saved through faith in Him. These were the true children of Abraham. And they were revealed ahead of time so that those who lived during His earthly ministry and afterward might know for certain that He was the Messiah. They could see that the things that He said and did, the things that He accomplished, even things that were outside of His control early in His life and as an infant, and when He was taken captive at the end and brutally crucified and mistreated by sinful men, all of these things happened in fulfillment to things previously said. These things were said previously so that we might know for certain that Jesus of Nazareth 
was the Messiah. Brothers and sisters, Jesus of Nazareth was the Messiah. He kept the law perfectly, and He also lived as the fulfillment of the law, the prophets and the Psalms, by being the one to whom the Old Covenant pointed. Christ was obedient for you and me, brothers and sisters. As we remember the crucifixion of Christ, and as we remember His resurrection, we often think of His passive obedience. That is to say, we set our minds on the way that Christ passively submitted Himself to the will of the Father, of how He endured suffering for us, even to the point of death on the cross. Thanks be to God for the passive obedience of Christ. He endured suffering in the whole of life and died in the place of sinners so that we might have the forgiveness of sins through faith in Him. Indeed, through His shed blood, sins were atoned for. But do not forget Christ's active obedience. Not only did Christ passively obey the Father by submitting to His will to suffer and to die in the place of sinners, He actively obeyed too. He lived in perfect obedience to the law. He finished the race that was set before Him. He faithfully spoke God's Word as God's prophet, and He fulfilled the mission as God's Messiah. Christ passively suffered for sinners, but He also actively obeyed God's law and God's will for Him for sinners. Christ was righteous, and this is why He has His righteousness to give as a gift to all who believe upon Him. Friends, be sure that you are united to Christ by faith. Do you wish to have your sins washed away? You must be united to Christ by faith. The forgiveness of sins is available through faith in Him because He shed His blood for you. The wages of sin is death, that is the penalty, and Christ paid it. He paid for your sins. He suffered for you, and in your place His blood was shed for sinners, for all of those given to Him by the Father in eternity But He also lived for you. Not only do you need the forgiveness of sins, you need righteousness. You need righteousness. And Christ has righteousness to give, for He Himself was righteous. Those who have faith in Christ are clothed in His righteousness. Our filthy garments are removed, but we are not left naked, thanks be to God. We are clothed in the righteousness of Christ if we have faith in Him. Brothers and sisters and all who hear me now, Christ lived for sinners and died for them so that He might bring many sons to glory. Let us be found in Him, united to Him by faith, and let us give thanks to God. Let's bow for a word of prayer. Our Father in heaven, we thank You for the marvelous plan of salvation. We thank You for Your mercy and grace shown to us. We also thank You for the way that this marvelous plan of salvation gives glory to You. For in it, Your holiness is magnified, Your justice is magnified, Your power is magnified, and so too is Your grace. You are merciful and You are kind, O God. And we give You thanks. We thank You for Christ, crucified and risen. We know that indeed in Him we have the hope of life everlasting. He has the power to give salvation to all who come to Him because of the work He accomplished. He said, it is finished. And we thank You for His finished work. I pray that You would strengthen the faith of those who believe. I pray that You would draw sinners to repentance even now. Show them their sin, O God, and show them also Your grace and Your mercy. Draw them by Your Spirit. 
Indeed, I pray that you would move us all to greater gratitude and love for this mercy that you have shown to us in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray and all of God's people say, Amen.